Well, I hope you uh, are willing to be flexible a little bit. This morning we were, you were studying all week in Daniel 7 and ready to hear God's Word from there, and we didn't really go there. Uh, and tonight you were ready for chapter 16, verses 1 through 18 from Luke, and we're not going to do that whole passage, just half. All right, so Luke chapter 16 tonight. Luke chapter 16. So one of the challenges of putting out a, a schedule for sermons Three months in advance is it's always difficult to know the chunks that you're going to preach. And so I like to do that so that you know where we're going, but then when I make changes, it makes it difficult for you. So uh, try not to make any changes, especially early. Uh, but towards the end, hopefully you can forgive me and, and we'll be ready for a new one here in just a couple weeks. So Luke chapter 16. Last week I mentioned that in order for us to understand parables, we need to know at least three things. We looked at three parables last week, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in order to understand those parables, and I think any parables need to understand at least three things. First, the occasion of the parable. What was the setting for the parable? Why was Jesus speaking about these things? Secondly, the audience of the parable. To whom was Jesus speaking? What was He addressing when He brought up these parables. And then thirdly, the limits the limits of the parable. So let's think through these here uh, before we even look at our passage in Luke 16. Um, the occasion. The occasion of this parable that we're going to look at, Luke 16, 1-9, is that it comes on the heels of the, the three parables that we looked at last week in Luke 15. Those parables had taught us that God diligently seeks out lost sinners and He passionately rejoices when they come to saving faith. And based on the wording of chapter 16, verse 1, it seems that the occasion for this next parable that we're going to look at is the same as the occasion for the previous three. There is a question, remember in chapter 15, there was a question over whether or not Jesus should have a relationship with sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes were scoffing at him that he would eat with them. And I think this is a continuation of that idea and Jesus is teaching his disciples and the rest of the audience will get to uh, who that is in this parable in Luke 16. Now, keep in mind that in in Luke 15 there there was more of a point that Jesus was making than simply... God loves to save lost sinners. There was another point he was making, and that came in Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. And that was that the self-righteous can't rejoice with God over lost sinners because they hate grace. They hate grace. That was the Pharisees. They they hated the fact that Jesus would show any kind of mercy to the to the sinners because they didn't deserve it. And the reason that they hate grace is because as self-righteous people, they don't think they need grace. They think only the wicked people need grace, and they don't. And that's why the older brother could not stand that his younger brother had this big feast thrown for him. And uh, so that's the occasion, I think, that Jesus is teaching here these three parables of Luke 15, now this fourth parable in Luke 16, a, a kind of a continuation, but a little bit of a different point than what he was making in the previous chapter. So the occasion. Secondly, the audience. In verse 1, it tells us part of his audience. Now he was also saying to the disciples, but notice in verse 14, 
which is what we're going to get at next week. Uh, actually, next week we're not going to be here, so actually not till, uh till next year. But verse 14, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening in to all these things and were scoffing. So it's more than just the disciples. It's also the Pharisees. And I think if we go back to chapter 15, verse 1, it's probably including the scribes as well, but, but the text doesn't say clearly. So the audience is at least the disciples, directed primarily at the disciples, but you can kind of just picture the Pharisees listening in. The limits of the parable is the third thing we need to understand. And that is that we must only take from the parable the points of comparison that Jesus intended. Last week I gave the example of the vine and the branches that we must not take the analogy farther than what Jesus intended in that analogy. And I've also used the example before of a pig. You know, if you called me a pig, then I would understand that you mean that I'm pleasantly plump. And that might be true. Okay? Because uh, you're calling me a pig because I eat too much. Or you could be calling a pig because you've watched me eat. I eat sloppily. Uh, the context of your statement when you called me a pig would determine what you meant by that analogy. But what I could be sure that you did not mean was that you thought that my skin was pink and that I had a curly tail. Okay, See, I don't take your analogy farther than what you intend when you call me a pig. And, uh, and why do I know that intuitively? Because I understand that you're just simply making one or two points of comparison when you call me that. Okay, so uh, in the same way, when we look at parables, we can't get into all the details and say, okay, every single part is the part that Jesus intended. We need to try to think uh, reasonably what would Jesus have intended and what was He getting at. That's why it's important to understand the, the occasion and the audience and then try to find out what the limits of that parable are. And in this one, it's especially important because He's going to be commending an unrighteous manager. And so we need to make sure we know what Jesus is commending about the unrighteous manager. Is he commending the unrighteousness? Okay, and we'll, that's a question we're going to have to answer when we look at this text tonight. So let's read the text together. I'll read you follow along. Luke chapter 16 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now, he was also saying to this to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, People will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. God has given each one of us a certain amount of faithful uh, of resources 
for which we must be faithful. God has given us a certain amount of resources for which must, we must be faithful, and He expects us to do that. And that's what this parable is about. It, it's kind of hard to, to determine what the point of the parable is, and I thought we were going to try to dig in here and see what's going on. First, in order to do that, let's look at the main characters. We have two main characters. We have four in all, but two main characters in the parable. Who are they? Okay, the steward or the manager and the master or the rich man. Okay, verse 1, you see that there. There was a rich man who had a manager. There's our two characters. We're going to have two more characters when the master goes and talks to the debtors and there's two debtors that are not really... Uh, they're, they're inconsequential, really. Uh, the main two characters that we're looking at are the rich man and the manager. The story is found in verses 1 and 2. The manager had squandered the resources of the rich man and the rich man finds out about it and so he demands an accounting before this guy's final day at the job, saying, listen, you're done here, but I need to have an accounting of what is owed to me. This manager was like the lost son who had taken his re- the resources that had been given to him and he squandered them. The manager's problem is found in verses 3 and 4. He recognizes his vulnerable position. Verse 3, What shall I do since my master is taking the management position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've been sitting behind a desk my whole life. I can't get out there and do manual labor at this point. No one will hire me. There are lots more people equipped to do that kind of job, and I'm not going to beg. So what am I going to do with myself? How am I ever going to receive favor from anyone out in the public after they know what kind of a job that I've done? So that's his problem. His goal is found in verse 4. He says, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed, so that it's already imminent, he's going to lose his job. When I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their home. So here's his goal. His goal is to make friends when his termination is final or prior to his termination being final so that when his termination is final, he'll have friends. So, how does he reach that goal? How does he get from losing a job, being sent out to the street, not able to do any other kind of job, to a place and not having any friends, to not having a job but having some friends? How does he get there? And the answer is found in verses 5-7. through seven. He comes up with a solution. And what he does is he brings all the people who owed the rich man money before him. Notice verse 5, because I want you to see that these two examples of debtors are just two examples. Verse 5 makes it clear that he actually brings before him all of the debtors. Verse 5 says, And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And here are a couple of examples. Okay, so there could have been dozens or hundreds or who knows how many debtors to the rich man. And the manager brings them all before, and here's an example of what he does to them. Verse 6, uh, verse, the end of verse 5, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. This hundred measures of oil, if you look in the margin of your Bible, is about seven and a half gallons. So 750 gallons of oil. And the master says, get out your checkbook and cut it in half. Okay, whatever you owe the rich man, cut it in half. And we'll take that. You'll be clear of your debt. You don't owe another dime. Or another drop. Maybe a better way to put it. The second example is found in verse 7. It's a man who owed a hundred measures of wheat. 
And if you look in the margin of your Bible, 100 measures of wheat is equal to about 10 to 12 bushels. So we'll say 10 bushels, so 1,000 bushels of wheat. He owed to the rich man. He had borrowed somehow in order to... Uh, uh, whatever his, his responsibility was, he borrowed a thousand bushels of wheat and the manager said, manager said, cut it by 20% and I'll call it good. So, so they take care of the debts and he does this with apparent, apparently with every single debtor, not just these two. And before we see the rich man's response, we need to look at the actions of the manager. Okay, What kind of manager do we have here? Is he an incompetent manager... Okay, so he's losing his job because he's not doing a good job. So the, the rich man is firing him because he's not doing a good job. Is it an incompetent manager who later becomes dishonest? He's dishonest by sticking it to the rich man by cut, cutting all the debts. Or is he a dishonest manager who has not been doing a good job because he's dishonest, but then later does something wise by cutting the debts? and building favor with the people. So which one is it? Is he an incompetent manager who acts dishonestly, or is he a dishonest manager who, who acts uh, wisely? And the answer comes in the rich man's response. And that really will help us determine what Jesus intends by this parable, if we can answer that question. What kind of manager is he? The rich man's response here is found in verse 8, at the beginning of the verse. And Jesus tells us, and his master praised the unrighteous manager. So the master is talking about the rich man that he's called in verse 1. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Notice what verse 8 does not say. The master, it does not say the master praised the shrewd manager for his dishonest actions. Okay, that's the exact opposite of what he said. Or, or that's a reverse of the, of the adjectives there in verse 8. Notice he says, he, it, he praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. So apparently the manager did something right after learning about his imminent termination that was a result of his previous dishonesty. Now, why would the rich man praise the manager if the manager didn't collect the debts owed to the rich man, right? So if you think about it, if you're the rich man, you're the manager, you're the, you're the master, and you have someone working for you, and they cut a bunch of people's debts and call it good, why would you ever praise that person who did that? And that's what we need to consider in this case. I mean, whose profit was being forfeited in order for the debt to be reduced? Was it the rich man's profit or the manager's profit? And there are at least three options. First, it could be the rich man's profit only. That when the manager cut the debts, 50% and 80%, he actually cut out all of the profit that the, that the rich man would have received. So if the whole debt was at 800 gallons of oil and he cuts it down to 400 gallons of oil or, or whatever the, the case is, then does that all come out of the rich man's pocket? If, if so, then the manager was simply trying to undercut him and take some of the profits for himself, saying, listen, skip you. I don't care about you. I don't, I'm on my way out the door, and I'm going to stick it to you. But if, the, if that were the case, if, if he were acting dishonestly and taking all the profits from the rich man, 
then why would the rich man say this in verse 8? Or why would it be said of the rich man? And, and this rich man praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Was he saying, oh, wow, that was a really cunning act you did. You really, you got, really got me on that one. Okay, is that the, the idea? The other option that uh, commentators come up with is that it could be that the rich man included interest on his debts, and so the manager simply removed all the interest that the rich man would have received. So, for example, if you had a debt of 100 gallons of oil, the rich man increases that to 120 gallons of oil. That's your debt. And the 20 gallons, is just he's, the rich man is just going to line his pockets with. And so the manager is simply saying, no, that's not how much you're owed. We're, I'm just going to give you the, the flat amount. Whatever was the, the base amount, that's what you can pay back now. But the problem with that is we have two different rates, don't we? If it were simply an interest rate, we'd expect them to be the same, but instead they're different. We have one at 50% reduction and one at 20% reduction. And so why would, would that be the case? So I, I actually don't think that the manager is taking the rich man's profit only. Here's the second option. It could be the manager's profit only. right? It could be that the manager was on commissions, that he received some kind of commission for handling all these accounts. And so he was like the tax collector of the New Testament. Remember how they acted? They would, they would have a certain amount of taxes that they needed to collect for the government, and then they would increase the amount, and whatever they could get from the person, they would just put in their pocket, and they'd give the rest of the government. And the way that it would happen is, it, it, I, from what I understand, is a bid situation. You'd have several tax collectors come in before the government, and here's the amount that needs to be collected. Let's say $100 million for this whole city. And the tax collector says, I'll buy that whole thing for $120 million. And then he goes out and he collects $150 million. He puts all of it in his pocket. And uh, so, uh, whatever the case, that, that's what could be happening here. happening here. The manager could say, listen, these are all my commissions and what I'm doing in order to gain friends when I'm done is I'm going to give up all my commissions, pass it on to them by way of reductions of their debts. And if he had collected all those debts, um, if he had collected all these debts before, he really would have had no money to show for himself. Uh, it could be that, but I actually think that it's a combination. That when the manager acted out and reduced both of these debts, he actually reduced both the rich man's profit and his own profit. Have you ever made a purchase where multiple parties were making commissions on your one purchase? Okay, have you ever purchased a house? How many different people make a profit on you selling a house? Okay, let's think through them. How many? Name one. Okay, the real estate agent? The title company? Okay, the seller? The seller is going to make a profit. He's got equity in the house. The broker? The bank who's, putting, who's writing the mortgage? Right? You have, yeah, you have the insurance companies. You have attorneys. You have all sorts of people that on your one purchase get all these profits. So it could be the very same thing here, that these people accumulated a debt and when this sale was finalized, when this debt was finally paid off, both the rich man and the manager would have received a profit, a commission on that debt being paid. 
And I think that's what's happening here, that the manager acted wisely because he made friends for himself by giving up some of the profit that he would have received and he also put people in good standing with the rich man. What would the people now think of the rich man if the rich man had reduced some of the, pro- the, the, money, the debt that they had owed? Right? What would they think of the rich man? They'd think of him as, as a generous man. The man who's, who's thinking for my well-being and he's, he doesn't want me to be in debt. And so I think that that's what's going on here. And the, the main reason I think that is because of verse 8, that the, the rich man praises the manager for his shrewdness, his wisdom, his act of, of wisdom in allowing uh, uh, these debts to be taken care of on his way out the door and in order for this man to gain friends. So now, let's think about the divine application in the second part of verse 8 and verse 9. There is some question as to where the parable ends and where Jesus' teaching picks up. I think that some people believe that the parable ends at the end of verse 8. I think it ends at the, the middle of verse 8. That's why I stopped there just now. Let's read verse 8 and I'll show you what I'm saying. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. End of parable. Now, here's what Jesus has to say. Here's his divine application. Verses 8 and 9. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So the Master praises the unrighteous manager and Jesus also praises the unrighteous manager. Notice He says, the second part of verse 8, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind. That, that's a good thing what the unrighteous manager did. He acted wisely and you should follow His example. Gain friends so that you will have friends in eternal dwellings. Gain them now with the wealth that you have, the wealth of unrighteousness. Jesus praises the man for His wisdom. And we need to keep in mind that this is a parable or an analogy where we must see only the points of similarity that Jesus intended. Okay? And this is where it's important because we have a man who's acting dishonestly, who, who had acted dishonestly, I believe, and Jesus is saying, follow his example. But we don't follow all of his example. We only follow the wisdom part. That's the part that we, we follow. So, how do we know where to draw the line when it comes to the points of comparison in, in parables. We might think that how could Jesus praise a dishonest manager? How could He ever do that? But what would you think if, if someone compared Jesus to a person who by their very title is known for criminal activity? What would you think if someone compared our Lord Jesus to someone who's by their very title is known for criminal activity. We would say, how could that be? We'd be very cautious. How could you possibly compare Jesus to someone like that? But do you know what Jesus compared Himself to in Luke chapter 12? What was it? A thief. Jesus compared Himself to a thief. And what does this comparison mean? Does it mean that Jesus is commending the thief for everything that He does? Of course not. 
We understand that metaphor that Jesus is like a thief because we recognize the context in which He was speaking, which was, be ready when I come back. You can't be ready for a thief to come to your house. They don't telegraph it. They don't tell you before they come. And so, in the same way, I will come at an unexpected time. The point of comparison, not that He was uh, good in His acts of thievery, The point of comparison is the thief comes at an unexpected time. Jesus comes at an unexpected time. So now we can look back at our parable and think about it. Jesus is saying, you, disciples, be like a dishonest manager. Not in every way, just like Jesus is not like the thief in every way, but He is in one way at least. And we must be like that dishonest manager in at least one way. And what is it? Look at verse 8 again. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. This is how we should be like them. He acted shrewdly. So, what are the points of comparison that Jesus is showing us in this parable? Okay, let's, let me just state them just to, to be clear. Christians should be like dishonest, the dishonest manager. Christians should be like the dishonest manager. What actions of the dishonest manager should Christians imitate? Certainly not his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. And what was it that he did so wisely that we should mimic? What was so special about the dishonest manager that we should say, wow, that's admirable, something that I should mimic? Look at verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So here's the point of comparison. How are they wise? How is the dishonest manager wise? And how should we be wise? The answer is that we should use our resources wisely like he did in order to produce benefits for the future. He used his resources that were at his disposal prior to being terminated in order to advance himself in the future. And we in the same way should do that. We should use the resources that we have in order to produce eternal benefits. And there are four ways that we can do that. We'll look at the first one this week and then we'll uh, have to look at the, the, the last three next time we look at Luke. So first, we can recognize, we must recognize the value of our resources. Verse 9, we must recognize the value of our resources. The second way we can use our resources wisely is that we recognize the limits of our resources. We'll see that when we get to verses 10 through 12. Thirdly, we must recognize the potential idolatry of our resources. Verse 13. And then, verses 14 through 18, we must recognize the misuse of our resources. The misuse. So the value, the limits, the potential idolatry, and the misuse of our resources. We'll look at each of these when we come to them in the passage. But just for tonight, we're going to look at the first one, the value of our resources. Verse 9, the value of our resources. I've mentioned before that, our, that, that my pastor uh, growing up, Pastor Doran, used to tell us at church that you, can, you can't take your resources with you. And isn't that true? You've heard the analogy of, you know, you've never seen a U-Haul uh, being pulled behind a hearse. Okay, and that's true. And he would often remind us of it. You can't take your resources with you. But he would finish that statement by saying, but you can send some on ahead. You can send some of your resources on ahead of you into heaven 
so that they will be stored up for you there where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. It's true that there are no U-Hauls that will follow you when you come to heaven, but it's also true that you will not come to heaven empty-handed. You remember the parable of the talents in Matthew? I think it's Matthew 25. What happens to the men who were faithful with the resources that they had, right? You had one, two, and five. What happens to each of them? The ones who are faithful. What does he do? Does he take away all the resources and said, enter into the joy of my Lord? No. He says, here, not only do you get the two that you had, but here's the other two. And for the guy that had five, he actually gives him the, the one that wasn't used properly. And he says, take all these and enter into the joy of my Lord. You have all these resources now at your disposal in heaven. And the point here in in Luke 16 is, if unbelievers, someone as wicked as a dishonest manager, if he takes careful thought as to how to use the resources at his disposal and how they're going to work for him in the future, then how much more should we? take stock of our resources and figure out how we can make them work for our future. Okay? Every single person you know does this. They think about their future. What can I do to take the current resources that I have and make it into whatever? A nice vacation, a big nest egg, a, a, a nice uh, retirement, a nice inheritance for my children. Hey, people think about what they're going to do with the current resources that they have. And Jesus is saying, there's wisdom in that. Think of, they think about what they're going to do for their future. The problem is, they're thinking about only temporal things. And what I'm telling you, Jesus is saying to His disciples, is that you ought to take stock of your resources. What do you have that you can use to advance yourself in eternity? You Notice the words he uses here in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. The same wealth that be, can become idolatrous for people is the kind of wealth that you ought to use to advance yourself in the eternal kingdom. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying you know, that we can buy ourselves a better home in heaven? Well, no. God's not going to be paid off in any way but He is saying that you can gain for yourself friends when you get there. Because when your life work is ended and you cross the swelling tide, what will you have to show for your time on earth? Will there be any believers there to welcome you along with Jesus? Or will they all be talking to someone else because they're not concerned about you coming to heaven? You you had no impact on them. Or will there be dozens of people who you wisely worked with, and generously used your resources so that they could see the glory of God in this lifetime. Don't be like the manager who had his whole career to be wise with the Master's resources and then failed to use those to make good friends until the very end. Now, clearly Jesus is not teaching that we should buy conversions. You know, hey, you know, friend, unbelieving family member, if you'll just repent and believe, I'm going to give you some money. Okay, I'm going to give you all sorts of money, possessions. I'm going to make it worth your while. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Those conversions will only last as long as the reward of money lasts, as long as you keep feeding them money. 
from your ATM. But after that, those people are going to turn away because those aren't real conversions. Remember in Luke 14, Jesus made it hard for people to be saved. But what do you have? What kind of resources has God given you to use to advance His work? And would you, would you assess yourself right now in that way? Are you like the dishonest manager prior to knowing he's going to be terminated? Just squandering all of the possessions that you have? Not using them to gain your own future well-being? What kind of resources do you have that you could use to advance God's work and that will work for you for all of eternity? It could be money. It could be that you just have more money than you need. Many of us in this country are like that. We have more money than we need. And so, use the wealth of unrighteousness to gain for yourself friends so that when you enter into eternal dwellings, they'll be waiting there for you. It could be that you have a nice home for entertaining guests. Are you using it for the sake of advancing God's work? It could be an extra vehicle when a missionary comes home or... or Maybe an unbeliever doesn't have a vehicle. They need the vehicle for a short period of time. It could be an education giving you the opportunity to teach. It could be a love for animals that would allow you to develop some relationships with other people in this church. Uh, that other people in this church could never make relationships with those kind of people. It could be a, a love for any kind of thing. What, what kind of hobbies do you enjoy? What kind of uh, resources has God given you that you could use to develop relationship and advance God's work? Is there something that you can use to advance God's work, to make friends so that when your life is terminated, you'll have something to show for it? We need to make an accounting of the resources that we have at our disposal and think about how we can use them for the sake of God's name. Look at verse 5 again. And he, the manager, summoned each one of his master's debtors. The implication is that we should, I think, evaluate all of our resources. Okay, If you think about the managers, each of his debtors being one kind of resource, right, or one, one type of resource, each debtor is a resource. So these two that are listed here, and as well as all of his other ones, he, he brought them all before him, he evaluated them, he figured out how he could use them to make friends when he's done with the job. And I would say the same thing about you. Don't just think, okay, I've got one thing that God could use. I've got these few extra bucks I could give. No. Think about every single way in which God has given you some kind of a resource which is more than money and see how you can use it to advance God's work in this lifetime and so that you can add more people to the kingdom. So that, look at the end of verse 8 again. The sons of this age that is, just normal unbelievers, they are wiser in relation to their own kind than the sons of light are with their kind. They're wiser than us in many cases because they take, they take action to help their future. We tend not to do that, Jesus is saying. And you need to do that. You need to evaluate your resources. Verse 9, make friends for yourselves with the wealth that you have, so when it fails, when it's all gone and you can't use it anymore, then you have something to show for it. Wouldn't that be a great thing that when we arrive in heaven, 
we have something to show for it? That it's more than, you know, we've arrived. But, Lord, we've actually been faithful with what You've given to us. And we've produced fruit through the power of the Spirit. We're not taking the credit, but, but the Spirit has produced fruit in us. Some thirty, some sixty, some hundredfold. And for all of eternity, we'll be able to enjoy the pleasures that God had allowed us to accomplish in this lifetime as a result of, of being willing to take stock of what we have and use it for the sake of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for passages like this that help to just remind us of our responsibility to, to use all that we have for Your sake. Sometimes it's easy for us to compartmentalize our lives and to think that as long as we're going to church and as long as we've got some of these basic areas of life buttoned down, it doesn't matter a whole lot how we use the rest of our life. But Lord, You demand every part. And uh, we bow before You our hearts are bowed before You in humility, recognizing our responsibility to give ourselves to You. And we pray that You would help us to take, take stock of our resources individually. And I pray that as a church we would do the same. We have been given so many gifts as a church to use for the sake of this area and for the, the sake of missions around the world. And we need to consider how we're using them. If we're using them properly and if we're using them to to gain friends in eternity. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to be like the dishonest manager in that way. To, to be shrewd with what You've given to us. And uh, Lord, we look forward to the day when You say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of Your Lord. And Lord, until that day, help us to be faithful and teach us to grow, strengthen us, to do the task that you've called us to this evening through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.